All right, it is good to be here with you again this morning. And uh, if you were not here uh, previously, I have some handouts. On Friday evening, we looked at sort of an introduction to the book of 1 John. The purpose of the book, it was written to believers so that they might have assurance of salvation, so that they might know that they are saved. We also went a little bit back into the Gospel of John to look at the basis of salvation. That was on page 3 of the notes. One thing that we did that first night... was looked at chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, where he writes to three different groups of people. We suggested that suggests levels of Christian maturity. And we put it in the form of a little diagram like this. The first box is little children. The second box is young men. The third box is fathers. And what the book is primarily about seems to be writing to those that are in the first box, little children, to move them toward the box of young men. He wrote, writes two things to little children. One is that your sins have been forgiven, and the second is that you have known the Father, which speaks of forgiveness of sins, which is what we dealt with Saturday evening. That was the major topic we talked about last night, about the forgiveness of sins through the, the blood of Christ. We've also talked to a little bit about that concept of the Father. And that we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning as well as this afternoon. This, the stage of young men here, the things he writes to young men is that you are strong, the word of God abides in you, you're doing battle with, with, the, with the evil one, which is really the stage of spiritual warfare. And what he's trying to do is move Christians into that stage where they're on the front lines of spiritual conflict. A soldier that is afraid to die doesn't work very well in, in physical battle because he'll run. A Christian who is not sure of his salvation is not going to be very effective in spiritual warfare. So that's one of the, the goals of the book is to move us into the assurance of salvation, which also results, as we saw, in fullness of joy in Christ. So then 
Last evening we looked primarily at the end of chapter 1, which dealt with the blood of Christ cleansing us from sin and what that means in our lives. So this morning, uh, beginning on page 6, the topic is overcoming sin. And we're going to be looking at 1 John 1, verses 6 and 8 and 10, picking up some verses that we kind of skipped over last night from the end of chapter 1, and then go on to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then pick up a couple of verses in chapter 3 that also deal with the subject of sin and victory over sin, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. That's what we'll attempt to cover here this morning. So let me do just a little bit of reading again from 1 John chapter 1. I think I'll begin reading here at verse 5 of chapter 1. This then is the message which we have heard of him that, and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you look at verse 7, well, let's first look at the end of, yeah, look at the end of verse 7. He says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And that's literally, the blood of Christ cleanses us from each and every individual sin that we have done in the past. Then he says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin. Now, how can this be? We've been forgiven of each and every sin. Oh, praise the Lord, I don't have any sin anymore in my life. John says, no, wait a minute, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. It seems to be a, a bit of a contradiction. So that's what I want to explore a little bit and try to understand what it seems like John is saying there. So to do that, I'm going to, do a, a diagram here. We'll use three circles there for the three parts of man. When I do that, the inner circle, I don't think I'll label them here, but you may if you want to. The inner circle is our spirit, the next is our soul, and the external circle is our body. We're made up of spirit, soul, and body. The body is what you see. It's your five senses. The, the soul is your 
mind, will, and emotions, or maybe your personality, your character. It's what, it's what you do in the body is going to come out of your soul. That's where your choices are made, where your desires are. The spirit is the deepest part of you. That's the part that communicates with God. Or this, this, these three circles over here are going to represent us before we're born again. Over here, I'm going to do the same thing, representing after we are born again. So again, I'm going to make three circles representing the spirit, soul, and body for after the new birth. Before the new birth, at a, at a spirit level, um, we have the old nature or the sin nature. I think those are essentially the same thing. Um, the Holy Spirit is not present. Um, Scripture says we're dead at that level. At the level of the soul, what you have, I'm trying to use biblical words here, words like anger, selfishness, lust, envy, fear, pride, those are probably some of the larger categories. Or you could probably add a lot of other words to there. I'm just trying to give you some idea of what might be happening in the life of the unbeliever at the level of the soul. Anger, selfishness, lust, pride, fear, envy, self-centeredness. And then what happens at the level of the body, these X's simply represent wrong acts and deeds. And what I mean by that is things like telling a lie, overeating, adultery, pornography, actually deeds that you commit, which obviously are going to come as a result of these internal motivations. And as this person becomes older, if he doesn't become a Christian, this just kind of multiplies and gets worse and worse. Even the person who's living in quotes a good moral life and is not a believer, it may look differently, but then you're going to have the pride and the selfishness. And without Christ, all of your wrong, all of your acts and deeds are really going to come from wrong reasons to build yourself up or to make yourself look good. So without Christ, you really can't, you can't do very well. Now, what happens at the new birth? Just draw an arrow across here. Now, this, uh, you know, we should take a whole week of, of meetings talking about what the new birth does, but I, I don't, we don't have the time to discuss that in great depth. We did discuss it a little bit Friday night, talking about uh, believing and repentance and how that enters into that trend transition, but at the new birth, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. We're given a new nature, the new man. We are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The new birth is primarily a spirit level change. Something happens deep inside of us 
the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, and we have a new nature, the new man uh, that Scripture talks about. Now, at the level of the body, when you're born again, all of these wrong acts and deeds, what happens, they're not transferred over here. They are, we talked about this last night, they are forgiven. The wrong acts and deeds, all of these exes are forgiven. And after you are born again, you have a clean slate in God's eyes. You are no longer guilty of the wrong acts and deeds. Now, the question is what happens to these motivations of the soul? What happens to the pride and fear and envy and anger and selfishness? And lust. Now, I do believe that God can change those when you're born again, and sometimes He does. I mean, you probably heard testimonies of someone who was an alcoholic after they got up off their knees and could be going again, the desire for alcohol was boom, just gone, and they never had to deal with it again. But that's probably not the normal. Most of the time, at least for me, when I became born again, uh, I still had some of these things. The fear, the envy, the anger, the, the pride. Those things are still there in your life. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember just a personal example in my own life. You know, my, my father had some problems with anger, in, in, especially in my earlier years, and I determined I was never going to be angry with my children. Well, so I tried hard not to display anger outwardly, but I remember after a while hearing one of my children say something like, whisper something like this to the other one, don't do that or dad will get mad. Oh, <laughs> I don't get mad. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, I, I think if we're honest, and this is actually, I think, what John is saying here, if we're honest, we have to realize that we've still got some of those in our lives. Now, there's a huge difference, though, between this side and this side. Here you've got a power source. You've got, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, which allows you to live in victory over those things. And what should be happening is, I'll just draw arrows out from that, from the Holy Spirit. I would call those arrows living in the fullness of the Spirit. If you let the Holy Spirit control you, what, what you want to begin building at that Spirit level is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. And as you start building those fruits of the Spirit, it's going to make a profound difference in your life. And, and Scripture talks about mortifying the deeds of the flesh, putting these things to death. Uh, I'll put the word sanctification over here. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. This arrow is justification. Justification, the way I understand it at least, is the new birth, when you're justified before Christ. Sanctification is the ongoing walk with God. Justification isn't the end of the road. It's only the beginning of the race. I think sometimes in, 
in, in some teaching that you hear, it, it's, it, it's kind of taught that once you're born again, that's the end of the race and it's done and over with. No, that's only the beginning of the race. Um, <laughs> sanctification is learning to live in the fullness of the Spirit and overcoming these issues. And it, it's, it's going to be a, a journey through our whole lives in order to live in victory over these things and to put them to death. So now let's, uh, having said that, let's go back. Maybe that looking at that diagram will help us a little bit here to interpret the last part here of First John. And another way to think of this, uh, this may be helpful to you. Uh, over here, we can put the word sins in the plural on the level of the body, the word sin in the singular at the level of the soul, and the word sinner at the level of the spirit. What I mean by that is, is that the unbeliever at the core level of the spirit is a sinner separated from God. At the level of the at the level of the soul, I would say it's the principle of sin. And at the level of the body, he's doing sins, which are wrong acts and deeds. Now over here, like we talked about last night, when we commit a sin, there's forgiveness. God does not put an X on our record like what's happening over here. But that does not negate the fact that we still have some areas of the soul that need redemption. So what I think John is saying in verse 7, when he says, but if we say that we have no sin, there's, there's different ways to interpret that. What's made the most sense to me is that what he's saying is, it, it's, it's the person who's been forgiven from their sins, and they say, ah, I don't have any more problems anymore. I'm forgiven, praise the Lord, I'm good to go. Uh, and John says, no, 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 no. If you say that you don't still have some anger, some lust, or some fear, or some pride in your life. Notice what he says next. He says, we deceive ourselves. How, isn't that true? The person who says, I don't have any problems anymore, they're just deceiving themselves because they do have issues and problems that they still need to work through in their lives. So I think that's what John is saying there in, in verse 7. Okay, let's, let's go back through the last part of chapter 1. You'll see there next, I have kind of, uh, we want to go verse by verse and just do a quick interpretation of the verses there at the last part of chapter, chapter 1. In verse 5, we had this, we had, he says this, this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you God is light, and him is no darkness at all. What you see through the last part of the chapter, you see a positive statement in one verse, and then he gives the danger of taking that too far. So you get, you get a, a positive statement of the blessings, and then you get a warning. In, in, and, that, and we're looking here this morning at the warnings. So then in verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if a person says that they're a believer and they're fellowshipping with God, but they are ongoingly, that walk is a present tense again, if they are ongoingly continuing to do the deeds of darkness, 
they're a liar. It's pretty straightforward. You cannot be a believer and ongoingly, continually do the deeds of darkness. It just doesn't, doesn't work. So, verse 6, the way I summarize interpretation of verse 6, it's saying that I can keep on sinning and am, a, and am okay, or I can keep on sinning and still be a believer. That's essentially what verse 6 is saying. To me, verse 6 is a direct refutation of the doctrine of eternal security, which says it doesn't really matter how you live. Well, right there you have one verse that very clearly refutes that theory. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. There you have a a positive statement, a blessing. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What I interpret that verse to mean, it would be the person who says that I have no sin or maybe maybe even something like the word issues. I have no sin or I have no issues or I have no problems at the soul level. It would be the person who denies that he has any of these things like anger, envy, fear, lust, selfishness still in his life. That's what I think he is saying in verse 8. The denial that sin exists in my soul, denying that I have any pride or fear or lust or idolatry. If, uh, if, if you've studied a lot of the writings of Paul, you could maybe Paul would probably use the term flesh here. In a sense, this is saying that I don't really have any flesh issues that I need to worry about, uh, which I think we do. Then verse 9 is again a positive statement. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We looked at that last night. And then we have verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The, the word sinned there, have not sinned, that is in the perfect tense in Greek, which uh, one of the nights I went through the basic tenses. And this one... it's not quite as clear to me. I'm still wrestling, trying to wrestle through what this actually means. The The literal kind of expanded meaning of it would be something like this. If we say that we have not sinned in the past and the results of those sins are not still evident, that would be sort of, the perfect tense means something that happened that is ongoing consequences. So, and I, I think John's probably trying to say something a little bit different than in the previous verses. He's doing more than just repeating himself. So exactly what is he, what is he saying? Uh, one one uh, scholar put it this way. If we say that we have not sinned and are now in a state when we do not sin, that's a possibility. But as, as I've meditated on it, one of, one of, and maybe this is sort of more a personal application, I, I've come to conclude that maybe what he's talking about is, is the person who, who kind of minimizes the sin patterns or strongholds in his life. It might be the person who says, well, yeah, maybe. He wouldn't deny that he sinned in the past, but he would just kind of say, oh, well, that wasn't any big deal. 
everybody gets angry with his children, everybody, and it didn't really have any consequences in my life. Whereas I think what John is saying is our sin patterns and our strongholds and things that we have done in our lifetime have had a profound effect on the people around us and have a big impact on the people around us. So I think verse 10 is the person who is saying, um, here's the way I put it, verse 10 is the person who is hiding sins and strongholds or sin issues from his past and denying that those things still have an effect on those around him. I've always been a pretty good person. Uh, Yeah, sure, I made a few mistakes, but it's forgiven and passed. Whereas being honest and realizing that the things that I have done in the past have had a huge effect on those around me. I think that's what John uh, is trying to get at there. So we go on to chapter 2 then. Okay, and there's a question at the bottom of page 6. Are you going to commit any sins during the next year? I wonder if I ask that and ask you to raise your hand, what would happen? Um, I won't ask you that, but um, usually when I get to about this point in the book, there's about four weeks left in the term at Bible school, so I put this on a worksheet and I ask the students, how many sins are you going to commit in the next four weeks? And then I ask them to, you know, what are, then I also ask them, what are some of the sins you're going to commit? It's kind of interesting, the next day, uh, I've already had students tell me what they're going to do. They're going to get mad, they're going to, I mean, I actually name sins that they're going to do in the next four weeks. And it kind of leaves me scratching my head, and I'll wait a minute here, what's going on? Of course, I kind of put them up to it, too, I know, but um, go on to page 7. He says, my little children. And whenever John uses that phrase, which he uses several times through the book, it's very important that you stop and listen carefully to what he has to say. That's, that's like a flag that says, hey, 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 I want your attention. I'm going to tell you something very, very important. These things write I unto you that ye sin not, he says. Now, what are the these things that he wrote? He's just been writing about the blessings of forgiveness that we talked about last night. That the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is, is ongoingly, moment by moment, cleansing us from each and every sin. So he's written about the blessings of fellowship with God. And now he says, I wrote these things to you so that you can go out and live a life of sin, huh? No, no, not at all. He says, I wrote these things to you unto you so that ye sin not. Now I ask the question there, so what tense is the verb sin? And there's really two, two tenses that could have been used here in Greek. One is the present tense and one is the aorist tense. If it's the present tense, it would be I write to you so that you don't practice sin, so that you don't ongoingly live in sin. If it's the aorist tense, he would have written I wrote to you so that you don't commit a single act of sin. Now, again, if I ask you that question, which of the two do you think it is, 
invariably when I ask my students that, they, most of them, if not all of them, will tell me that's in the present tense. And the present tense would make sense, but that is not what John wrote here. He used the aorist tense, is what he used. So what John writes is, my little children, these things write I unto you so that you do not commit a single act of sin. Uh, now, wait a minute, John. What do you expect out of me? <laughs> but that's what he wrote. It's not, when, when I first looked up the tense of that word sin, that's not what I expected to find. I expected it would be present tense. I wrote to you so that you don't practice sin. But he wrote, I wrote unto you so that you don't commit a single act of sin. I, I, was, I was pondering this question when, uh, one day, and, and actually I think what I had done was something a little bit foolish. I had given my students the question, how many sins are you going to commit in the next year? And then I was wrestling, so how am I going to teach this the next day? You should know what you're going to teach before you give the questions. But So I, I, was, I was kind of asking the Lord, what do I do with this? And I remember walking down the road behind SMBI and asking, and all of a sudden it came to me, I wonder if the Apostle John was walking beside me, and I asked him, Suppose I could ask John, hey, John, in the next four weeks, how many sins are you going to commit? And I, I wondered what he would say. And then it just came to me kind of like a, in, a, in a flash, knowing what, what the Bible says about John and his character. I could just imagine John looking over at me and smiling a little bit and saying, well, I'm not planning to commit any sins. That's really stuck with me. Um, I think that's what... John, in writing here, is trying to get us to see. So that's how I would answer that question there. How might the Apostle John answer the question, how many sins are you going to commit in the next year? I think he would answer, this is just my guess, something along the ways that I'm not planning to commit any sins. And I based it on what he says. I wrote these things to you so that you sin not. So John, the next line there, John does not deny the possibility of sin, but denies the plan to do it. He does not deny the possibility of sin, but denies the plan to do it. I think sometimes we kind of approach life like, well, yeah, I'm going to sin. Everybody sins, so it's okay if I mess up a few times. John challenges that. He says, no. You know, really what that is, is oh, it's okay if I sin and it's okay if I mess up a few times. God's going to forgive me anyway. John says, no, wait, wait a minute here. You don't, you don't need to live that way. Living that way is going to de defeat your joy and pull your joy down. It's going to lead you, if you keep on in that pathway, it's going to lead you away from Christ. We do not need to live a life of sin. We can plan on not sinning. Now, another, another question, just taking a little further, another question I like to ask my students, um, and I'll ask it to you as well. From where you are in your life now till when you die for the rest of your life, let's just not take the next four weeks or the next year, let's take the rest of your life, uh, would it be possible for you to live the rest of your life without committing another single act of sin? Now, I know my students say, well, that's a very theoretical question, and I understand that. Uh, but 
think about that. First reaction is, no, I'm going to sin. You know, everyone sins, and I, I understand that. On the other hand, uh, you know, so let's try something here. We'll go for five seconds, and let's see if you can keep yourself from sinning. So if we waited five seconds, just make sure you control your thoughts and your mind and don't hit the person beside you or, you know, curse. See if you can do it for five seconds. If you can do it for five seconds, then do it for five more and just keep going for the rest of your life. Uh, as, as, I, as I've pondered that question, would it be possible to live the rest of your life without sinning? The only answer that I think I can biblically give to that question is yes. It's possible. Now, if you, if you said no to that question, think about what you're saying. If you said it's not possible to live the rest of your life without sin, you would be saying that the Spirit of God, who is 100% perfect in my spirit, can't keep me from sinning. And I, I, I'm going to have to sin sometime because I'm human. And you would be denying that God has the power to keep you from sin. That's what you'd be saying if you said no to that question. Now, does that mean that I'm going to live the rest of my life without sin? Probably not, but I'm not going to plan on sinning. That's where I'm at in my experience. If I, now, John goes on to talk about what happens if we do sin, but he wants us to understand that we do not have to plan on sinning. There is a way out. And when I do sin... Is it God's fault? Oh, I'm just a human person and this is just the way I'm made. No. When we do sin, it's because of our choice to sin. It's not because God made us. this. God made us in his image with the power to choose right. And when we sin, it's because we choose to sin. So again, it's, it's not denying the possibility of sin, but it's denying the plan to do it. Now, having said that, I just... I, I, I want to I say this. Maybe, maybe what I say there makes it sound easy, like, well, you just follow God 100% and you'll never sin the rest of your life. I realize it's not nearly as simple maybe as I make it sound. Most of us, if not all of us, probably all of us, have deep-rooted issues and strongholds in our lives that makes it very difficult to always consciously choose to do right. A lot of things we do, we may sin almost unconsciously without even quite knowing what we're doing. And I'm, I'm very well aware of that. And so it's, it's, it's not as simple as maybe it, it seems. But I'm, I'm trying to get us to see that God has made us creatures of choice. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And he's given us all the means, everything we need for godliness and life in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's keep on going to see what John says. So he wrote, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And I'm convinced that the more we understand the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, the more it will lead to less sinning and not more sinning. I think sometimes we're afraid that if we preach too much about the love and forgiveness of God, then people will go out and, and sin. I'm convinced that if we preach it properly, and what the Bible teaches, it's going to lead to less sinning rather than more sinning. And now he says this, and now I'm, I'm at the place where it says the answer to sin, Jesus Christ. And if any man sin,
That is an aorist tense, again. So that means if at any point you do commit an act of sin. If he doesn't use the present tense here. If it was the present tense, it would be if any man keep on sinning, we have an advocate with the Father. Well, the implication is that if you live a life of sin and keep on sinning, then you're going to get beyond the point where Jesus is your advocate. But if at a point in time you do commit an act of sin, then you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. The advocate, the word advocate, the meaning of that word is, uh, the Greek word is parakletos, which uh, means to call to the side of, or it's one called to another side to aid him. So you could say we have one who is called to our side to aid us. It was a word that was sometimes used in the courts of in the court system to denote a legal assistant, someone who is your legal assistant. You could also say there. Just another note of interest here, which shows the character of John the writer. He says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Notice the preposition we there. What John is doing, the we includes John. We have an advocate. John includes himself right along with us and says that I might also sin. There's also the possibility for me to sin. It's, it's actually a dramatic switch of person. He says, if any man sin, that's the third person. If, if any person out there sins, then we, he includes himself. He switches to the first person plural, which is we. It's a, it's a very dramatic change in wording. And the point is, John is saying, I'm right there with you. I'm not above you in the struggle to live above sin. I may also fail, and if I sin, I also need Jesus Christ, who is the advocate. There are two things about Jesus Christ that make him eligible for this role of advocate. So the end of verse 1, we have, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. And the, the first thing I see is that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. What does that mean? That he lived a perfect life, and because of that, he could be a perfect sacrifice. So the first thing about Jesus Christ that makes him eligible for this role is that he lived a righteous or a perfect life. He lived a righteous or a perfect life. That's there at the end of verse 1. Now, I, I think sometimes we minimize this a little bit, but think about it a little bit. So Christ, for his 33, however many years it was, he never sinned. Uh, oh, you know, that's nothing. I can do that too. I'll try it. For 33 years, he never once satisfied his fleshly desires. He never once gave in to the temptations of the flesh. He never once, and I, I know we say he was, he was God, and he was, so he, he had an unfair advantage. But look, he's given us the Holy Spirit, who is God living in us. Uh, and 
it was another teacher at SMBI pointed this out, which I found kind of intriguing. He said that actually being God in one sense made it more difficult for him because when Jesus got himself in a fix at the cross, he could have called legions of angels to deliver him. If I was being crucified, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be tempted to call ten legions of angels because I couldn't do it. But he had the authority and power to do it. So there was, an, in a sense, an extra temptation that he had to deal with because he could have called ten legions of angels and they would have come immediately to rescue him because he was God. So I, let's not minimize that. That is the only way he could have been our redeemer and the perfect sacrifice. So that is one of the things that makes him eligible to be our advocate is because he did what none of us have done, and he lived a perfect, righteous life. The second thing is in verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's the, that's the second point. He is the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? It's a word we sometimes use, and I don't think we know what it means. The word propitiation, um, it, it mean, has the idea of appeasing, but probably the easiest way to define it is, is to put in the words atoning sacrifice. We could say he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, on, the ark, on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the, the same Greek word is used in Hebrews for the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood was poured out on the mercy seat was the place of propitiation, where the wrath of God was appeased. So he is, he is the mercy seat for our transgressions. He poured out his blood. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he lived a perfect life. He gave his life for us, and that's the basis that he is able to be our advocate before the Father. All right, we're going to, we're going to uh, jump over the rest of chapter 2. Lots of good material there, but just not enough time to look at it in detail. We're going to go to chapter 3, and I want to pick up at verse 6 of chapter 3, and a very important section of verses here, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now, I think every time here that you have the verb sin or transgresseth, it's in the present tense. Essentially, the present tense is the main tense that is used here. 
So what, what he is saying there in verse 6, the one who abides in him does not keep on continually sinning or does not practice sin. These verses have sometimes been misinterpreted to mean that the Christian will not sin anymore or that you could have a second work of grace where you can live above sin. But that's not actually at all what the text is saying. The, the present tense very clearly uh, identifies that. The one who, and so what, what he, at, at, at a face value reading, he's just saying that the one who is continuing to abide in Christ does not continue to sin. And the, the one who continues to sin has not seen him, neither known him. So the Christian does not practice sin or does not continue on in sin. So if I draw an arrow here, and that arrow will represent a month of time. And um, I've got someone who's a Christian, and um, they're like most of us sadly do. They sometimes get angry, or they sometimes lie, or they're sometimes gluttonous or whatever, and so they do commit some sins. Um, so this person during the month commits one sin, let's say. Now, is that practicing sin? Are they living a life of practicing sin? The text says the Christian does not practice sin. Well, probably not one sin. Well, let me keep putting X's on here. Okay, now we've got four is that practicing sin? And keep adding X's. How many X's till you're practicing sin? Someone want to venture a guess? starting to look bad. Huh. How many X's till you're practicing sin and God cuts you off? Ooh, that's another question I'd like to ask my students. What's the problem with that way of thinking? You notice what I was doing already I was putting X's down for the sins does God even do that God doesn't even put X's down on our record that's not his approach at all If someone asks how many sins can I commit until I get cut off from God, the problem, they've already got a problem, okay? We should be asking how few can I do in the next month, not how many can I get away with, okay?
okay? Uh, so, now, if, oh, yes, the Bible does give a number. What's the number the Bible gives? Didn't, you're supposed to, isn't it 70 times 7? After that, you're no longer forgiven? <laughs> so 490, 490 in a month's time. Again, obviously, that wasn't, wasn't the idea. Jesus was just telling Peter that you need to keep on forgiving. So, so I asked down there at the bottom, so what is John trying to say here? What, what is his point when he says, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not? Now, I do think part of it he is saying, and the, the text literally says, the one who is born of God does not keep on sinning, does not practice sin. And I think that's a fairly clear statement. But I don't think he's trying to, he's not trying to say that there's a certain number and beyond that, that you're cut off. That isn't so much the point. Uh, so what, what is he trying to say? Well, I, maybe the best way to illustrate this is, is I'll use a little illustration that I use sometimes. And I know this is sort of a very, um, I, I need to come up with a better one, but for sake of not having a better one, I'll use it. I'll, I'll just tell you right up front, this, is, this little scenario that I give you is not true at all. I'm just using it for an illustration, so don't read anything into it. Don't read anything political into it. That's not the point at all. But I, I use this for my students to make the point. Um, I asked them this. Do you remember back in, um, was it 2008, when Obama was inaugurated? And um, I think one of his daughters was Natasha, I think. You remember while he while Obama was up front making the inauguration address to the nation, you saw the camera go to the background where his daughter was sitting there. She was like eight or nine at the time, something like that. And she was picking her nose and eating the stuff. Now do you remember remember seeing that now there's no such thing. I'm just using it for illustration. Now think about that. Is that proper? of the president's daughter? No. It's very improper, very incongruent. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, now, that I think is the picture of what sin is to the Christian. I think what John is trying to say is that when you have the Spirit of God in you and you're sinning, it's like, here's the Spirit of God living in you, and here you are sinning. It's like, huh? Why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. And I, I get that partially from looking down at verse 9. 
Look carefully what he says at verse 9. Verse 9 is one of the most powerful verses in this book. He says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. The is born of God, that's a perfect tense. The one who was born out of God in past time with ongoing consequences. You have had a change at your spirit level. The Holy Spirit is living in you. God has perfected you at a spirit level. He's ongoingly forgiving each and every sin. And he says, the person who is doing that does not continue in sin. It's like, here's this, here's that. Doesn't match up. Doesn't make sense. And then he says this, for his seed remaineth in him. The word seed, the Greek word is spermatos. We get our word sperm from that. What he's saying is the very essence of the nature of God is in you. I think he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit being the very essence and nature of God is inside of you. And he says, and he cannot sin. Notice those words? He cannot keep on sinning. It's it's incongruent. You can't do it. The person who has the Spirit of God in him, is, it's not possible for them to go out and live a life of sin. It's, it's incongruent. It doesn't match up. You can't do it. Because he is born out of God. So, two beautiful truths. Jesus came not only, and I didn't really talk about this first one directly, but Jesus came not only to forgive our sins, but also to give us victory over sin, or to destroy the works of the devil. The end of verse 5 says, you know he was manifest to take away our sins. Okay, we've talked about forgiveness of sin last night, but that's not the only reason Jesus came. He also came to take away our sins. I think that means to take away the control of sin in our lives. And then in verse 8 he says, for this purpose the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came not only to forgive our sins, but to destroy the power of sin in our lives. And I think that's, that's in the context here, that's the point that John is trying to get across. And then the second thing I already mentioned is that God's very essence and nature, that's the word sperm, remains in the believer. The very essence and nature of God stays with you and dwells there And that, he says, makes it so that you cannot live a life of sin. So what I I, I guess in conclusion, what I want to say is, we had the blessings of forgiveness last night, but let's not stop there. When you understand forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin, that's really only the starting point. That, as we realize what God has done and respond in gratefulness, let the Holy Spirit live out of our spirit, we have the means, we have the resources to live a life above sin. We do not have to choose to live in sin. Yes, when we do sin, there is forgiveness. We have an advocate with the Father, and there is forgiveness. But that's not God's plan that we continue to sin and sin and sin and he forgives and forgives and forgives. That's that Romans 6 deals with that. What shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin continue to live therein? That's what Paul, writing on the same theme, says in, in Romans.
All right, this afternoon then, we're going to go back and look at a couple more topics, particularly dealing with wrestling with assurance of salvation. We deal with our hearts, the idea of, of doubts and confusion at a heart level on page 8, page 9, dealing with the problem of fear, and then page 10, sort of a summary at the end of the book of moving into the realm of spiritual warfare.